Welcome back to the Reflection Podcast. I'm Ed Blonsky, and I'm thankful that you are here. Hey, what do you think of when you hear the word Bible? We all have these ideas of what the Bible is. It could be a book on your your nightstand, a book on your desk or coffee table or on your bookshelf. It could be something that you read on your phone or your tablet or on uh, as a website. Where did that come from? And if only there was a place where we could go to to learn more about that and to see all the different types of Bibles there are. Well, there is a place. It's called the Museum of the Bible, and it's in Washington, D.C. And I want to introduce you to a person that uh, is part of the Museum of the Bible. In fact, he's the person who is one of the curators bringing in the collection, different types of Bibles and the fragments of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible. So on this episode of the Reflection Podcast, we'll be diving deep into the Bible and the person who brings us some new information on the Holy Scriptures, as many people refer to them, on this episode of the Reflection Podcast. In the pastor's office with me today is Jeff Kloa. Welcome, Jeff. I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Great to see you again. It's good to see you too. We, uh, we, uh, Jeff and I crossed paths at the seminary. We were not in the same class, so, uh, but we were in a lot of the same classes, I believe, and had a lot of the same professors. And so, Jeff is, uh, while I went through the seminary and became a pastor, uh, Jeff has gone a little bit of a different route. And so, why don't you give us a little bit of background to you, who you are, Jeff, for our listeners? Uh, yeah, great. Um, well, maybe I'll start from the present and work back. Uh, it may be easiest. So um, my wife and I live here in Washington, D.C., Susan. Uh, you have two daughters grown. One is in Chicago, one's in St. Louis. And I've uh, been with the Museum of the Bible here for um, about six and a half years now, I think it is. And prior to that, uh, I was a professor of New Testament and provost at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, our alma mater. And did that for 18 years from uh, 1999 to 2017. And part of that, it was a pastor for six years and uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So, uh, yeah, kind of did the seminary to, to pastor route and then uh, got the call to the seminary and and then uh, was approached about this position. And uh, here I am now. So uh, not not exactly linear, but uh, but that's how God works. Yeah. It is very, very, very often how God's works in a lot of different people's lives. Um, what let's dig. I want to dig a little bit into your background. What uh, really prompted you to to be to go to the seminary and initially to be a pastor? Yeah, well, um, you know, I grew up in the church and grew up in the city of Chicago. My dad was a, a Lutheran school principal and, um, you know, urban setting, not not inner city per se, but urban. And um, I, I appreciated the uh, opportunity for ministry in that kind of setting. Um, so I uh, actually wanted to get into urban ministry. I did a, a vicarage in Flint, Michigan, uh, summer vicarage in Detroit, and uh, really wanted to kind of go that route. Um, and uh, I guess when I got to seminary, I got a little derailed with some of the academic stuff. So some of my professors encouraged me to, to do some additional work. And um, so I did a second master's degree at SEM, but then went to, to Cleveland and 
served a really outstanding congregation there. In fact, they had their 75th anniversary last month and went back and for that, that was wonderful. Um, and again, a, you know, urban setting, uh, diverse um, school ministry, which, which had opportunity for uh, community people coming in, new people coming in, preschool, those kinds of things. So I really just wanted to uh, uh, help people see how the gospel makes a difference uh, in lives and in communities and, and uh, could be transformational um, and just to, to be a part of that. So that was a lot of fun. I had a great congregation in Cleveland, uh, you know, very, very positive. Um, so that was, that was initially what I really wanted to do was, was bring, bring the word uh, to, to people who don't know it. And that is exactly what you're still doing today. It's just uh, sometimes we we have a plan, and then God says, "Yeah, here's yeah. here's what the plan is going to be," and it can change throughout time as well, um, as you and I both know. So, give us a little bit of a background to the Museum of the Bible and and what it is that you do there. Yeah, well, we opened here in Washington D.C. Uh, just about six years ago, uh, November of 2017, and uh, we're the largest. Bible-focused museum in the world. Uh, we have uh, seven floors of exhibits, oh, six floors of exhibits, seventh with restaurant, things like that, theater. Um, uh, let, me, let me kind of give you our spiel on what we are. Our, our official statement is uh, Museum of the Bible is an innovative global educational institution whose purpose is to invite all people to engage with the transformative power of the Bible. So it's a lot of words. Um, but the, the, the real uh, agenda here, the real goal is to present the Bible in a very um, uh, public way, uh, a very accessible way, so that people of a faith background, no matter what that faith background is, or no faith background, can come to see the Bible's uh, impact, its importance, uh, what it's done in history, what are its basic stories, and to, uh, uh, to encourage people to, uh, to read it and to, to come away with... Uh, with knowledge, uh, certainly, but also a desire uh, to to dig into the word, and uh, so it's a big big operation. A four hundred thirty thousand square foot museum. We have fifty five thousand objects in the museum. Um, uh, we work with international partners. We have a long term partnership with the Vatican Library. We have an exhibit with them, uh, with the Israel Antiquities Authority. So a large, actually the largest archaeology exhibit of uh, Israel outside of Israel is here in our museum long-term partnership with the Ecumenical Patriarchate in Constantinople, the Orthodox Church. Um, we've done projects with, uh, say, the Nation of Malta, Nation of Armenia. Uh, right now, we in the exhibit with the uh, Greek uh, Parliament and another one with the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Um, so, yeah, that, that global aspect to, to show that the Bible is not just an individual thing, uh, but it's impacted uh, around the world and to bring that here uh, to Washington, D.C. for people to see. the All those places you're talking about, in, in my mind, are striking. You know, that's where the Bible was written, basically, in those areas. Wow. Um, you know, those are the hot spots. But it's interesting how we take it for granted, I think, as people. I mean, as a pastor, I've got several copies of the Bible all around me. Uh, many homes, especially in America, have a Bible in them, but we don't always think about where it came from 
Yeah. And I, I, I would uh, um, presume that's what the Museum of the Bible is for, to help educate people that this is where it came from. Uh, yeah. What is it that you do for the museum? So my title is the Chief Curatorial Officer, which uh, I don't know where that came from, but uh, essentially I have a team that we do the um, uh, all the exhibits in the museum, um, the education programs and the tours and the lecture series, those kinds of things. Uh, we take care of the collection of artifacts and uh, and then also the research area. So we sponsor some research projects and some publication projects. So all told, uh, there's about 45 people on my team and very talented, uh, very specific, a lot of different skill sets, but a uh, great group of people to work with. Who started the museum? Yeah, it really came out of the um, uh, uh, Green family in Oklahoma City. Uh, they they were approached by some people about doing a museum. It wasn't kind of going anywhere. And they decided to take it on themselves and uh, kind of give the initial impetus for the project. Um, really got going in a way in about 2010. And uh, property was acquired here in 2013. Construction started in 14. And uh, we opened up in 17. So, uh, of course, now lots of lots of people involved. So we're an independent uh, nonprofit organization, our own board of directors, and uh, lots of people involved in the project. But, uh, uh, yeah, the real impetus is, is with the Green family. Why did they pick Washington, D.C. for the location? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, they did uh, surveys and research onto where would you put a museum. And the the uh, top two results were New York City and Washington. Obviously, that's where people go to museums. Um, the interest is always Washington, primarily because uh, in New York, you kind of get lost, right? There's so much going on. And and in Washington, people come, you know, school groups come to D.C. and tour groups come to D.C. And it's a little more, you know, museums, more cultural than New York, which can be a little bit crazy. So. So they were looking for property in both both areas, uh, and this became available, uh, perfect size, perfect location. We're, we're two blocks from the Air and Space Museum, eight minute walk from the Capitol building. Uh, so we're right in the heart of Washington and uh, uh, great to be a part of this community here. So if somebody's down on the mall, you're right there. You yeah, we're right there. I mean, you could, you know, we're on a metro stop. You know, so get the subway here, uh, but we're we're right there. A beautiful view from our top floor uh, of the Capitol Building, the Washington Monument, and you could see it all. It's, it's a gorgeous view. It seems to make sense to me that that's exactly um, the 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 place, especially in the United States, but really in the world that people that God would want His Word uh, accessible to somebody. And of course, He does that through the churches and through His. Uh, the people of the church, but right there, there's so many people coming through Washington D.C. every single day. There's yeah. God's word, and they get to to uh, they get that that uh, history of it. I would assume um, if so, take us on a, maybe a little virtual tour of the museum when they yeah. come in. What do people see? Yeah, well, it's first of all, it's a beautiful space. I mean, the uh, the design, the interior is just a, a beautiful space. Um, but one one thing we uh, the design goal was from the beginning was to well I'll give you my standard joke right uh, when most people hear the word museum they will often think you know old boring dusty right who cares uh, and when many people hear the word Bible unfortunately they often think old boring you know dusty so what could possibly be worse than a museum of the Bible I mean it's like boring multiplied right. 
So, so we knew that going in. And uh, um, so the aesthetic is, is just a very appealing aesthetic. There's a lot of technology, uh, video, interactivity, sound everywhere you go, um, experiential kinds of things rather than simply books and cases. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very different kind of museum. It's a very modern kind of museum in that respect. Um, and, and that's carried through the, the main gallery. So our three uh, main areas of focus in the museum and the three uh, permanent galleries are the history of the Bible, which is essentially how did the Bible start in the ancient Near Eastern world and how did it become translated and spread uh, really around the world to the work of uh, translation still happening today. So that's uh, fair to say the, the most comprehensive display of the history of the Bible in one place in the world. It's a very amazing gallery. So it uh, sounds like it's a it's it's that new brand of museum, very yeah. interactive, very hands on. Um, yeah. We both lived in St. Louis. The St. Louis um, Science Museum was very much like that as well. Yeah, similar, similar kind of feel. Right, right. Yeah. And we're both from Chicago as well, the Museum of Science yeah. and Industry. I, we grew up yeah. with that, that that's the kind of museum. You don't just, it's not like yeah. the Art Institute where you go and you look at something. Exactly. Move yeah, on. A, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So you've got... And then the, uh, what yeah, we give you floors, the, the impact of the Bible floor is uh, how the Bible impacted culture. So it's, it's kind of snippets of 21 different areas of life where the Bible's had an impact. And the, the theme there is uh, how is the Bible hidden in plain sight? So how does it show up in popular music? You know, Bob Dylan, Nine Inch Nails. How does it show up in Hollywood movies? How does it show up in fashion and in Shakespeare and Harry Potter, right? So how does the Bible uh, shaped our culture, even if you don't realize it? And we also talk about the how the Bible intersects with American history on that floor. So kind of a chronological overview. And then the fun floor is the, if we call it that, the uh, uh, stories of the Bible floor. So we have a, a unique, award-winning, uh, we call it the Hebrew Bible experience. It's a 30-minute, uh, it's hard to describe. You walk into a space, there's video, graphics, sound, uh, and it walks through the narrative of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. And you go from Genesis, you know, Noah, Abraham, it's 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 amazing. It's our, it gets great great feedback from guests, and we also have a um, we call it the world of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, you walk into a space that's a reconstruction of Nazareth Village in the first century. Uh, so full size, you interact with characters talking about life in the first century. So so very interactive, uh, very experiential, and uh, again want to give people a taste so that they want to learn more when they leave. Obviously, well, maybe maybe it isn't obvious, but it, to me, it would be you have a Bible there. <laughs> so, yeah. what's in the what's in the collection? What kind of Bibles and, and manuscripts do oh, you have in your collection? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, yeah, everything. I mean, we have uh, our, our oldest. Um, I'll say our oldest biblical manuscript is a third century copy of the Psalms in Greek. Um, so it's the oldest Psalms in Greek actually in the world, um, and we have. Uh, Fourth century, third century papyri of the New Testament. Um, we have uh, one of the four oldest Hebrew codices in the world, a Pentateuch from the 10th century, which, you know, having graduated seminary, uh, you know, the Leningrad Codex is what the uh, Hebrew text is based on. Ours is one generation older. Beautiful copy. Um, all the way through uh, 
fragments of Gutenberg, uh, early printed copies. Luther is a big feature because he was so important for the history of the Bible. Um, so it's it's pretty comprehensive. I would say the strengths are um, medieval manuscripts, very nice collection of medieval uh, Greek, Latin manuscripts, uh, Armenian, others, and then uh, early printed books. So Tyndale, Luther, um, the, the kind of 16th, 15th and 16th century uh, early printing, uh, very comprehensive in that area. Now you are, you're prof I would assume, proficient in Koine Greek, uh, the new the language of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament, Aramaic. Do you see from those fragments that our copies that we have today are are accurate and there's not a lot of change between those early forms of the Bible and what we have today? Yeah, and this is actually my academic research. My PhD work is in exactly this area. So, um, uh, yeah, modern scholarship has has really spent a lot of time and energy and and uh, come to the consensus that what we have uh, for the text of the New Testament in particular is is uh, remarkably uh, reliable, remarkably consistently transmitted. Um, it's it's uh, refined so that we know very well. Uh, what the uh, what the apostles wrote and uh, and that's been handed down you know for 2,000 years. Um, one reason we reached out to the ecumenical patriarchate is uh, to uh, highlight the continuity of the use of the Greek Bible in the Greek Church for 2,000 years and and they're essentially using today the same text they were using you know 1800 years ago. So um, it's uh, it's great to be able to highlight that and to show physically you know how the church is has, has use these copies and handed them down generation to generation. You have, you said second century fragments um, or. Um, yeah, third, third century. Third century. Be, so, uh, and that's the 200s, right? 200. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the last book of the Bible was written right around the end of the first century. I'm thinking. Yeah. Revelation took play about the end of the first century. Right. So not that much removed a hundred years, maybe 150 years removed from the, mm -hmm. the original autographs, as as the academics call it, the original manuscripts. Yeah. Uh, how important is it for people in the church and then people maybe asking questions about the church? How important is it to show them that the Bible is reliable in this way? Yeah, I mean, certainly if people uh, question the Bible uh, in that respect, it's a, it's an unfair it's an unfair criticism because it's simply not the case. And, and any even the most uh, you know kind of a critical scholar will acknowledge that our, our new New Testament texts are 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 you know it's the same as what they were reading you know eighteen hundred nineteen hundred years ago. Um, so that that's one element. But you know, I, I think it's fair to say what's more important is not that we prove the Bible's accuracy or something, but that they actually read it, right? It's, it, it's the message that's, that's key. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully we can remove that as a stumbling block and, and uh, uh, open people up to reading it just on its own terms. Uh, that's really all, all we're trying to do. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the church's job in general is to just get people to the word. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, what, as you walk through the collection and and you have have seen what's in the collection, what's the most surprising thing you found in your collection? Well, there's been good surprises and bad surprises, I guess, but uh, <laughs> like any any collection, uh, that's an interesting question. I would say um, most surprising thing. 
I mean, I, I knew a bit about the collection when I when I joined the museum. Um, uh, so surprising. Um, I'd say, you know, my, since my background is uh, early church and Greek and that kind of thing, um, I'd say what's been surprising is is the um, uh, the printing press, uh, all the all the um, uh, creativity and urgency to get the word out in the early 16th century, Luther, Tyndale, uh, just how quickly that spread, how quickly it uh, it went from a very expensive proposition um, and uh, uh, became an impetus for printing, uh, literacy, really, uh, uh, the emphasis on literacy for the general population is in large measure inspired by the desire to have people read the Bible. So, so you know, again, because my academic work was, I think, narrowly focused, just uh, seeing how um, just culturally transformative the, the Bible has been, especially in that, you know, kind of 15th, 16th century. So we got the Reformation, right? And we usually think about, you know, the, the gospel and all that kind of stuff. But equally important and maybe more important is this whole, let's, you know, getting the Bible out there for, for people to read on their own. And and uh, the efforts and uh, uh, success of that project. God speaks to people. Uh, we see this um, all the time, and we hear the stories of it in the Bible of speaking through dreams, speaking through um, direct, um, just the voice from heaven. Um, but is it your experience in looking at all these fragments and manuscripts and uh, the the collection of the Bible in, at the museum that the Bible was meant to be read, written down and read? Yeah. Well, yeah, certainly uh, written down, and uh, uh, and I would I would um, maybe change that a little bit, both read and heard. Okay. Uh, for for the vast majority of the history of the church, uh, very few people could actually read. Uh, estimates are that in the Roman Empire, only five to ten percent, maybe fifteen percent of the population could read. So when when uh, Paul writes a letter, say to Galatia, that's being read out loud to the congregation, and uh, and you see that even how the manuscripts are are laid out, how they're how they're produced, and uh, so I'd say yes, definitely read, but also heard, right? And uh, you know they're not written as a reference book; they're not written as something to be put on a shelf. Uh, they're, you know, to use the words of the early church, it's the living voice, right? The living voice of the gospel. And uh, it's it's a call to us to to listen. So let's switch gears just a bit. Why do you do this work? You know, why did God call you, you think? Or, or what what is it that, that God did for you to get you into this position? Why you? Yeah, you have to ask him, honestly. Um, I can try to guess. And, uh, you know, uh, it, in some ways, I've had three completely different careers, right? Mm -hmm. Cast, professor, and now museum. Um, but the, the thread has always been the, the, the scriptures, right? The Bible. And, and um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I was blessed to have a, a father family who uh, raised me in the faith and, attended a Lutheran high school in Chicago that where I learned Latin and German in high school. Right. So I kind of got that exposure to the languages and went to Concordia Ann Arbor and, you know, did some classical Greek and then Koine Greek and more Latin and, and, uh, uh, and then Hebrew. And uh, um, so just had that real interest in 
in studying the Bible and then especially uh, teaching the Bible. And um, uh, so I, I think that's the thread is I just, I just really enjoy teaching. Uh, I really enjoy uh, help opening the scriptures up to people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to work. I mean, I teach, you know, Sunday Bible study at our church here in, in uh, the DC area and uh, speaker pastors conferences. And, and so I like to I like the hands-on uh, practice of teaching and, and what's appealing about this is it's teaching in a in a kind of a different way, right? Nobody's trying to put the Bible out there in a public space uh, the way we are here. So it's it's um, uh, I mean I don't I don't know why me other than uh, 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 you know the Holy Spirit works when and what He wills, I guess. You Absolutely, know? I, I agree. Um, I it's just that from looking at your your career and and the training you have had. You could I see the common thread as well that that God has been training you and putting you in these different positions and and is is qualifying you basically He's called you, but now He's going to qualify. You weren't qualified, and then He said, "Okay, I, I could use this guy." He says, "I'm going to use Jeff, and then I'm going to give him all these gifts and experiences to get him." You know, as a pastor, you've got a, a certain amount of people that you're influencing and interacting with. As a professor, that's a little bit bigger. Uh, there's there's more people involved and you're in the involved in the training of men to become pastors and women to become deaconesses and 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 uh, professional church workers. And now you seem to be on a large stage where and, and it's interesting, like you said, you're not pushing the Bible out into the public square. People are coming to you. They're right. coming in to see the word of God. And you're in a, in a very unique, qualified position to do that. Yeah. Who mentored yeah. you along the way? What are some of the people that kind of guided you? Uh, the reason I ask is that people don't always realize how the people in their lives are really helping them in very specific ways. Who was it for you? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because I was going to kind of add that to your to your comment, that it really is um, the community, uh, you know, God's people who shape and form us. Uh, help us discern, you know, what God have us do. And uh, I mean, I, I'm simply the product of, of the church, right? <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, my father, certainly uh, very, very dedicated uh, servant. And um, my grandfather, uh, who actually was a car mechanic uh, his whole life, and uh, but taught Sunday school uh, did door-to-door -door evangelism, you know, Kennedy evangelism back in the day and, and welcomed refugees from the Vietnam War, you know, helped to resettle refugees up in Michigan and just an uh, outstanding model of, of, of Christian individual. Very, very influential. Um, uh, and then, and then of course, when you get to, to you know, university and seminary, uh, you know, professors can be very, you know, Jim Veltz, uh, still a good friend and and uh, he's the one who kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you should do grad school, you know, instead of doing urban ministry. And uh, so kind of the rest is history. Uh, my doctor father, Keith Elliott, at University of Leeds in England, uh, wonderful person. Um, and uh, and then even, you know, people people here, people like Mike Holmes, who's, uh, you know, tremendous scholar of the New Testament, who uh, I met, you know, 25 years ago at academic conferences, uh, is still uh, affiliated with the museum here. In fact, I talked to him on Friday. Uh, he's kind of the reason I ended up here. He gave him my name and uh, uh, just a tremendous model of a Christian individual, servant heart. Um, so yeah, I mean, many, many people along the way. Uh, and um, 
uh, all who help, um, you know, here's a good idea, here's not, uh, here's something you should consider and, you know, opening doors uh, that, you know, I wouldn't have expected. Um, so I, I think it's just, uh, like I said, I, I, I have no idea how all this happened. It, it just kind of, yeah. If I were to give you a, a large billboard and you put it up on the building and the Capitol, people can see it from there. Uh, and, and so they're going to be taking a quick glance at this. So it's sort of a, uh, what is it that you would want the world to know? This is in, in a short, pithy statement, um, sort of a, 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 what do they call it? Uh, like a vision statement um, that's got to be in, in you know, few words. Uh that's an interesting question. I mean, on, on one sense, um, you know, we do that at the museum, but we do it in a way that doesn't, uh, it's not churchy, right? We don't want to turn people off. Um, you know, we want them to see this as an impressive cultural place and and uh, walk in the door. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, we had this in the gospel reading yesterday, right? Uh, uh, well, we had the baptism. Uh, no, we had John the Baptist. But the, the in Mark, the first thing Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Mark is uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the good news. And that's obviously very churchy. And, and you know, most people won't know what that means. But that's really the key message. Right. Uh, God is working. Uh, he started in Christ and it's time to get on board right? Uh, because cool things are going to happen. And uh, I'm not a marketing guru. I'm not sure how you get that on a billboard, uh, but but somehow to convey uh, confidence and excitement at what God is doing. Uh, I think too often we we uh, in our day and age we get all you know oh the world is terrible and the church is declining and everything is everybody's against us and and uh, you know as, honestly as I look back at church history. Um, we have it way better than almost every generation of the church. And, and uh, I know we like to kind of pity ourselves or something, but, but the opportunities in front of us and the things that are happening are, are really incredible. And to focus on uh, what God is doing rather than what we wish were happening and, and uh, have a little confidence. I mean, it's, uh, I like to tell people when, um, when the apostle Paul wrote, the first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, estimates are there were maybe 50 or 60 people in the in the church uh, at the time. And um, and, he, and he says, right, <laughs> uh, you are those upon whom the end of the ages has come, right? Uh, uh, that God is working here. And, and the church goes from, you know, 50, 60 people in Corinth, probably less than Philippi. And, and now it's it's billions. I mean, it, it, you know, it, and how did that happen? Right. Uh, and, and um, why should we not expect it to continue? Right. So, so I'd, I'd say that that would be my message overall is to, uh, to be excited about what God is doing and, and, and get to work. Yeah. We are in a unique position because we have 2000 years of history 2000 years of artifacts that were kind of built upon. And uh, it, it's amazing uh, talking with um, uh, other people uh, last year uh, around the Reformation time, uh, the whole impact that Luther had uh, translating the Bible into the language of the people, how, what an impact that had. It raised literacy rates for one, because people yeah. wanted to learn how to read because, so they could read their Bibles. 
And then it changed the world, it, at least the Western world. It, it certainly uh, influenced the, the rise of uh, modern Europe and, of course, the United States as well. Um, so the Bible is a book, and I want to ask you, what three books either you're reading now or you would want to give to somebody to read um, to gift them? We just had Christmas. So what what kind of books might you give away? Uh, books of the Bible? Anything. Or... Anything oh. you want. Oh, okay. Um, well, actually, maybe this sounds weird, but I, most of my reading is actually non-devotional uh, reading. I, you know, I, I prefer just to read on my own, read the Bible on its own. Sure. Um, so, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of keep those worlds separate in some ways, I guess. But um, I would say for, for books of the Bible, if I could go there, um, uh, yeah, when I was a pastor, I, I did, you know, adult confirmation class. And then first thing I would do with new groups of uh, people in the church would do a Bible study on Philippians. And uh, I taught that in my church last year. Uh, it's a beautiful book. It's a uh, very positive, you know, Paul talks about rejoicing. He talks about dealing with uh, challenges and how God sees us through those. Uh, very clear presentation of Jesus Christ as Lord of the gospel. Uh, and it's short, so you can get through it, you know, and it's, it's just a great little book. I think it's one of the uh, teaching, a, doing a camp workshop on that this summer up in Michigan again. So it's uh, just fantastic stuff. And I learn something more every time I go through it. Um. And uh, I'd say for the Gospels, I, I really like the Gospel of Mark. Uh, again, it's it's a lot of motion. It's quick. Uh, uh, a lot going on in that book. Um, and again, focus on on Jesus and the kingdom. Um, and then, I don't know, third book, I guess, and this came up, you know, I'm, I'm teaching parables right now. So not specifically uh, a book of the Bible, but it came up last week in the parable of the persistent widow who uh, uh, goes to this judge and keeps pestering and pestering and pestering and complaining. And uh, finally, the judge, even though he's unjust, you know, grants her her uh, her request. And I pointed out that in the Psalms, you you often have this kind of prayer to God of of uh, praying, sometimes even complaining, right, being angry at God. And uh, and that we should we should read the Psalms uh, as a model for prayer. Yeah, sometimes there's beautiful praise. Uh, sometimes there's there's anger. Sometimes there's complaining. Sometimes there's pleading. Right. And um, uh, so I think the book of Psalms, and that's part of my daily uh, devotion is, is to read parts of the Psalms uh, on a regular basis and to, to kind of have that language and that uh, uh, uh frame of frame of mind as we approach God having a support so Psalms Mark and Philippians would be my three books are there any um books about the Bible that you would recommend or give to somebody um to to help them to kind of keep alongside um when they're reading the the scriptures yeah boy that's a uh depends on kind of what your goal is actually one one book I'd, I'd really strongly recommend and it was influential on me is uh, Martin Franzman's uh book on uh, follow me martin Franzman's was a uh, professor at concordia seminary in the 50s and 60s uh, beautiful way with words and had a way of uh, summarizing the content of the bible very clearly but accurately so his follow me is a, just a, a devotional commentary on the gospel of matthew and really lays out 
what the gospel is, what the Christian life is. Uh, beautiful little book. I would highly recommend it. And you can find it online, you know, cheap. His commentary in Romans, likewise, uh, beautiful little commentary. He he reduces all the technical kind of confusing things in Romans down to very, very straightforward, uh, very helpful material. So I I really like Martin Franzman. He's, uh, again, a good writer, uh, but also a good teacher. I found his work very helpful. My first uh, experience of Martin Franzman was as a hymn writer. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And then it it opened up when I got to seminary. It opened up, wow, this mm -hmm. man was a teacher and and a writer and not just a hymn writer. Um, and so important. And so I'm going to put uh, links to those uh, in the show notes as well, I, I do appreciate you mentioning that um, for people to read, if they were getting introductions uh, or, or just coming to the Bible to read Mark, the gospel mm -hmm. of Mark. I, so often I hear um, new Christians uh, or people that are that are really exploring what the Christian faith is and people recommend read the gospel of John, read the gospel of John. And it's like, I don't know that I would do, do that because yeah. the theology of John is incredibly deep. Uh, you get to John 6 and you're going to lose people, uh, yeah. just as Jesus lost a lot of people on um, yeah. not only the feeding of the 5,000, but then the, the follow up with that. But Mark really just, man, it, it goes at 16 chapters and it just moves. Yeah, it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not it doesn't dwell on things, you know, picks up themes. Um, I mean, each, you know, each gospel is written for a specific purpose and audience. And, and uh, you know, uh, Mark, I think, is is uh, is a good one for that. Um, the introductory Luke in some ways as well, if you want a little more uh, kind of structured presentation. Uh, but those, I think those are the two I would start with. Um, and that that's um, uh, sparked something because Mark and Luke, both those gospels were actually integral in the storyline of Paul Meyer's books on the skeleton in God's closet that uh, there was the, the, the first book, there's a lost yeah. page of Mark. And right. then Luke um, uh, was with the Constantine Codex um, mm -hmm. that there was Luke and then there was Luke part two, which is the book of Acts. And then right. part of the plot device in that in his story there is that there's another uh, right. edition of Acts, a volume right. two. So that leads me to ask, do you think we're going to find more manuscripts uh, that we don't have already uh, of the scriptures? Uh, are they hidden somewhere, do you think, around the world? Manus copies of the New Testament or additional books? Um, I guess both, but but maybe, you know, yeah. we have copies of the books. Are we going to find older manuscripts of what we have already, I guess, is, is a better Yeah, question. I mean, I would say uh, we'll, we'll continue to find uh, fragments, small pieces. Uh, actually, a lot of the... Um, materials that are being published today, small fragments were actually excavated a hundred years ago and scholars are still kind of sorting through those finds. So, so, you know, occasionally there's a, there's a new item published, uh, but, but they, they tend to be, okay, we already knew that sort of a thing, additional evidence, that sort of a thing. Um, uh, the reality is uh, the only place that uh, you're going to find older material like papyri is in a dry climate like Egypt, and, uh, uh, you know, that's pretty much been excavated out with the high water dam they built. The water table is rising. So uh, it's very unlikely that we're going to find more materials uh, that are older. Um, same thing for for Hebrew Bible. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a huge discovery. 
but the uh, Israeli archaeologists have gone through all the caves now. They've, they've you know, made sure there's nothing else left. And um, so I would say the, the possibility of finding new materials is, is, is pretty remote. And, uh, you know, when I, when I teach this topic, I usually tell people that if, if you see a news report of some amazing new discovery, uh, it's either way overblown or just flat wrong. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's, um, uh, not much, I would say not, not much more chance of finding something in our current technology, current situation. Okay. Well, fair enough. And I, I just think it's fascinating. Um, we kind of went through that, that period, um, with the Da Vinci code and people yeah. starting to look at the, uh, non canonical, I guess is the K mm -hmm. is the word, the big church word for it. But, uh, it seems like that we've kind of faded from that, that we're past that. And there's a very good reason why we don't consider those, uh, on the same level as, as scripture, uh, the 66 books we, we currently have, um, how, how can we find out more about the museum of the Bible? Well, the easiest way would be to go to, go to our website, uh, one big long word, museumofthebible.org, and uh, information about our exhibits, about uh, you know when to visit, uh, tickets, tours, uh, special exhibits going on, uh, all those kinds of things are on the website. Even um, we have a collections page. We have about 900 of our objects are online. You can see pictures and descriptions. Uh, we got videos, some programs up there, uh, do a podcast. So uh, there's a good bit of online content, uh, but then uh, a lot about uh, coming to the museum uh, on that website. So if somebody's going to be coming to DC, what do how should they plan to visit the museum? Well, it's it is a very large space, and and uh, you really you really can't do it justice even in a day. But uh, but really, the way we designed it is. You know, if you want the kind of uh, academic, more academic kind of things, you can do the archaeology, and, and we got that um, very traditional museum gallery. Um, but if you got, you know, eight, 10, 12 year old kids, there's, there's go to Hebrew Bible, go to the Washington Revelations, the ride through Washington, um, uh, the, the Nazareth Village, right? So there's, uh, I, I would say, plan on a good afternoon or morning. You know, and uh, you can get lunch here if you want. Um, uh, but it's it's not the kind of museum where you go to for an hour, see one or two things, and leave. Uh, it's a very experiential, and and uh, uh, people tend to spend a good three to four hours here as a typical visit. Good, good to know. Anything yeah. that uh, maybe I should have asked and and I didn't get around to? <laughs> um, I don't know. We covered a lot. Yes, um, we did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's fun. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I appreciate you being here with us, Jeff. And and God's blessings as you continue to do his work uh, through the Museum of the Bible. And it was good to see you again. Good to see you. Blessings, Ed. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeff Kloa as much as I did. What a fascinating place, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And Jeff is one of those who 
bring in the new items for the museum, the fragments and the manuscripts that make up our Bibles today. If you'd like to know more about the Museum of the Bible, there is a link to their website in our show notes, as well as links to Jeff's uh, page where you can find out more about Jeff Cloa and also links to the books that uh, he mentioned also in this uh, episode of the Reflection Podcast. The Reflection Podcast is produced by St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Hawthorne Woods, Illinois. We'd love to have you come and visit us. We are in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. We're about an hour northwest of downtown Chicago, but only a half hour from O'Hare Airport. If you happen to be in the, this uh, Midwestern city uh, on the plains, we'd love to have you come and join us at St. Matthew. Go to our website to plan your visit. It is stmats.net, S-T-M-A-T-T-S.net. If you're not in the area, you can still find out more about us at our website. All our worship services are streamed. Many of our Bible studies are live streamed and our devotions and other podcasts that we have from St. Matthew. I'm Ed Blonsky. Thanks for joining me today. And join me again next time uh, for another fascinating conversation with another fascinating person uh, that reflects the love of God. Thanks for joining me on the Reflection Podcast. God's richest blessings to you.